It's been a crazy week. In case you didn't hear, we had an election on Tuesday. Yes, it's still that week. And I don't know about you, but the week has been an emotional roller coaster. On election night, I, I was able to sleep, but I found myself waking up frequently. And as I sought to combat the anxiety in myself, I, I tried to remind myself that God is in control. Now, when I say that phrase, it, it, it can raise different emotions in different people. And so I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. God's being in control does not mean that we aren't responsible for our choices. God's sovereignty is never an excuse for passivity, resignation, or willful disobedience. What we mean when we speak of God's being in control, what we call his sovereignty, is that because God is the creator and king over the world, he is in control of all history, never taken by surprise, and never checkmated by the evil forces that really are at work in our world. Our passage today is about the question of whether God really is in control that way and what it means for us if he is. It's a question because, quite honestly, it doesn't always feel like God is in control. Instead, it often feels like powerful people are. And powerful people make us nervous because we don't know what they're going to do with that power. Let me read you a quote from one of our presidents. To give you just a bit of context, this president is speaking to his staff. He's trying to secure passage of a bill in Congress. And so he's telling his staff to persuade congressmen to vote in favor of the bill that he is pushing. And he's asking them to use any means possible to persuade congressmen to vote for the bill. And the president says, I am the president of the United States, clothed with great power. Those two votes must be procured. I leave it to you to determine how it shall be done. But remember that I am the president of the United States, clothed with immense power, and I expect you to procure those votes. How does that quote strike you? Who, who do you think said it? Does hearing this person lay claim to such power make you nervous? This quote was actually spoken by Abraham Lincoln, in regard to trying to secure votes for the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. It's an imperfect amendment, to be sure, but one which did abolish slavery as it had been practiced to that time. Knowing that Lincoln spoke this quote, a man whom most Americans respect, does the quote strike you differently? Are you as anxious about the claim to power as you may have been? Imagine if this quote came from the mouth of the person that you were thinking said it. We may be able to justify to ourselves Lincoln's words here, but in the mouth of someone in whom, whose character we have less confidence or in the service of a cause for which we have less sympathy, these same words could rightly inspire great fear. Why does the outcome of this election cause us so much anxiety? It's because we are worried that a leader, one from the other side, one whom we don't trust, will have the power and will say and actually believe something like what Lincoln said, and that he won't just be trying to pass an amendment abolishing slavery, but instead will be doing something that will perpetrate evil. Fear of leaders clothed in immense power is nothing new. Ancient Israel was no stranger to powerful rulers. Israel was first ruled by the Egyptian empire. That's where they came out of. And the Egyptians thought that they were gods. Then they were a vassal state to Assyria and later Babylon, and whose leaders were capricious, arrogant, and violent. As we saw last week, Israel was subject to Nebuchadnezzar, whose pride was so severe that God had to send a debilitating mental illness in order to humble him. While Israel lived under foreign domination, they wrestled with the same fundamental anxieties that we do, that the leader is going to abuse their power in order to do evil, and that God is going to do nothing to stop it. 
the natural questions with which we need to approach our text today is why not? If God is in control, why doesn't he act and stop evil? Is God really in control? As I read our text, I want you to think of those questions. Is God really in control? And if so, what does that mean? This is a long passage, but it divides neatly into three scenes that we're going to look at one at a time. Our first scene is um, it's about the pride of Belshazzar, and it's in verses 1 through 16. I'm going to, as I read that text, I'm going to stop and explain things a couple times. Starting in verse 1, chapter 5, Daniel 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. And then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. What's going on here? Belshazzar has essentially given God the middle finger. When Nebuchadnezzar burnt the temple to the ground and took the sacred vessels, he treated them as plunder. He put them in the temple of his god, Marduk, to symbolize that Marduk had conquered Yahweh, Israel's God. Belshazzar has gone way past that. By taking the sacred vessels and using them for a common feast, he is denying any sacred value to them. He's essentially saying that the God who made those vessels sacred doesn't exist. An analogy from our context is Mount Rushmore. To the Lakota Sioux, the Black Hills in what is now South Dakota are sacred. For there, Inktomi brought Tokahe, the first human, out from under the earth to live on the earth. And at first, the U.S. government honored the sacredness of those lands, making a treaty with the Sioux to give them the hills forever. Once gold was discovered, however, the government threw out the treaty, seized the land, gave it to the highest bidder, who then desecrated it. To the U.S. government at that time, the Lakota account of creation had no reality, whereas gold did. And so they seized the land, mined it, and turned it into a memorial for four presidents. Likewise, Belshazzar took the vessels that God had made sacred, desecrated them, and used them to praise what he valued, his gods. Belshazzar is throwing up his middle finger at God and saying, you don't really exist. This is what happens when pride and power mix. It's particularly egregious in this situation because Belshazzar hasn't done anything worth being proud about. As Slim mentioned last week, Nebuchadnezzar had every reason from a human point of view to be proud. He had conquered the ancient Near East, from the Persian Gulf to Israel to the border of Turkey. He was the one who had conquered Jerusalem. He was the one who had built the Hanging Gardens. Belshazzar, on the other hand, isn't even really the king. We know from the archaeological data that the king of the Babylonian Empire at this time was actually Nabonidus. The Aramaic word melech, which is, which is translated king, doesn't necessarily mean the number one person in charge. Belshazzar is actually the governor of Babylon. He may be the heir to the throne, but he has no reason to be proud. But he is. Let's keep reading. We're now picking back up in verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, and then the king's color changed. And his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. And the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. 
And then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. What, what just happened? This whole scene is about Belshazzar's pride, a pride that is baseless, as we just talked about. And here we see the consequences of that pride. Insecure pride is always worried about the truth coming out. Insecure pride is always worried about one's legitimacy being undermined. So something unexplainable happens. A finger appears in midair, writing on a wall in full view of the lampstand. And Belshazzar's true character is revealed. He, he pales. He trembles. You can imagine standing there, about to give a toast. When the hand appears, everyone is looking at him. Everyone sees his mouth gaping open. They see him trembling. They see the wine sloshing from his cup as his hand shakes. And they hear that bang as the cup falls from his hand and hits the floor. Yet he has to save face. So as people are prone to do when we feel insecure, he gets loud. Verse 7, he calls loudly for the, all the best people in the kingdom to come and explain what happened. But again, he has to save face. He still needs to be in control. So he frames it like a challenge. And he offers rewards that only he can give. Note, though, that the reward for the person who can explain something that he doesn't understand is to be third person in the kingdom. Nabonidus is first, Belshazzar is second, and this person, even though they can explain things he can't, is going to be under him. Again, Belshazzar is humiliated, though. None of the wise men can answer. Now, to be clear, as we'll discover later, the writing is only three words, and they're not that unusual. They're in Aramaic, a common language of the time. So why couldn't all these smart guys interpret the writing? Perhaps it's because it was written vertically and not horizontally, or perhaps Aramaic doesn't have the vowels and only the consonants are written, and they weren't 100% sure what words are meant. Either way, the point is that Belshazzar's big night his claim to fame is quickly unraveling. He's being humiliated, and now everyone is noticing. Look at verse 9. All the lords are also perplexed. Everyone notices. Let's keep reading. Now we're in verse 10. The queen, most likely the queen mother, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. And then Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. It just doesn't get any better for Belshazzar, does it? Verse 2 said that his wives and concubines were already at the feast. So the queen here in verse 10 most likely means the queen mother. And you know it's bad when your mom has to step in to try to fix it. 
The queen remembers what has happened in the chapters that we've been looking at these past several weeks, events now decades in the past. How Daniel had interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dreams when no one else could. And so she tells her son about him. Note how she tries to protect his image. She says, don't be so afraid publicly. And then she tries to offer a solution. But Belshazzar's pride means that he can't accept help that easily. Sure, he calls Daniel like his mom tells him to, but note what he says in verse 13. You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. The queen hadn't mentioned that Daniel was a captive, a prisoner of war. Rather, she had referenced Daniel's Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, a name remarkably similar to Belshazzar's own name. Belteshazzar, Daniel's name, seems to have meant Bel. Bel is a Babylonian god. It seems to have meant Bel, guard his life. And Belshazzar seems to have meant Bel, protect the king. Pretty close. Obviously, Daniel doesn't hold the position of chief magician that he held under Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 anymore. And instead of respecting Daniel, Belshazzar stresses that he is a captive. Everyone in the room is holding a cup or a plate taken from the temple of Daniel's God in Jerusalem. And Belshazzar calls attention to Daniel's status to remind him of that. Belshazzar obviously hasn't connected the finger writing on the wall with these actions, or if he has, he doesn't seem very bothered by that connection. Instead, he has to maintain control. He has to build himself up at Daniel's expense. He is not the desperate one trembling with fear. Rather, he is the one with power to bestow a reward if this captive can do his bidding. What do we learn from this scene? Belshazzar exemplifies human pride and a particularly dangerous sort of pride. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar's pride, which was based on actual achievements, Belshazzar's is based on self-delusion. Because this pride is not based on anything concrete, it is inherently insecure. And so Belshazzar is loud, profane, provocative, seeking to make himself seem bigger and better than he is. Desperate to maintain the illusion of control when the wheels start to come off and the illusion starts to unravel. How, how does it get this far? This degree of self-deluded pride is only possible when there are no checks and when one does not fear retribution. Belshazzar's power as a ruler is what enables him to act this way because no one has stopped him. Why shouldn't he degrade Yahweh's sacred vessels? Yahweh doesn't really exist. He can't do anything to stop me. The first point for this sermon, the first main point, the point of this scene is that human pride is loudest when it thinks God is silent. Human pride is loudest when it thinks God is silent. Note what the text hasn't said yet. The text did not say that God sent the fingers to write on the wall. All we have seen so far is an egregious example of human pride. Our familiarity with such leaders means that with the original audience, we have to ask this question. Will God stay silent when leaders exalt themselves? So that's the question that we bring into the second scene. We're now looking at verses 17 to 23. Verse 17. Verse 17. And then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts before yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. 
But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Enter Daniel. When Daniel opens his mouth, the entire drama changes. Daniel provides a clear example of how to speak truth to power. Daniel's focus, his whole response focuses solely on God. And his actions. Belshazzar had just referenced what his predecessor. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is not Belshazzar's real father. He's his, the word father there means predecessor on the throne. Belshazzar had just referenced what Nebuchadnezzar had done in conquering Judah. And so Daniel uses the same Nebuchadnezzar as an example. Daniel points out that Nebuchadnezzar was truly great. Look at verse 19. All peoples, all nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. Daniel is preaching Slim's sermon from last week to Belshazzar. Even though Nebuchadnezzar's pride was based on real accomplishments, none of those accomplishments were done outside of an ability that God gave to him. None of them were done outside of the control that God exerts over the universe that allowed Nebuchadnezzar to do them. And when Nebuchadnezzar forgot that, God humbled him. And now Daniel gets to the main point, verse 22. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. Daniel's point is this. God has not been silent. Yes, human pride is loudest when it thinks God is silent, but he is not silent. He has been and is in control, and he has and will humble the proud. The first main point of the sermon is that human pride is loudest when it thinks God is silent. The second is that human pride is loud because it has stopped listening. The problem lies not with God's mouth, but with human ears. Human pride is loud because it has stopped listening. Ancient Israel, just like us, was no stranger to arrogant rulers, to men and women of power who deny God's existence, take advantage and denigrate what he has said is sacred, and essentially dare God to respond. Daniel knew this. The reason he was in Babylon was because Israel's own leaders were just as guilty of ignoring God's voice and actions as Belshazzar was. And so this scene raises an important question for the original audience and for us. Will God judge others the way he has already judged his own people? We're now at the third scene of our passage. We're looking at verses 24 to 30. Picking up in verse 24. And again, this is Daniel still talking to Belshazzar. Then from God's presence the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekeo, parsin. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekeo, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. 
And then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him, that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. Daniel finally gets to the interpretation of the vision. It's simple, really. When you give God the finger, he will send his finger right back at you. Belshazzar has denied God's very existence, and God responds by saying, I put you on the scale, and you're lighter than air. You are worthless. Ouch. Yet even then, Belshazzar refuses to repent. He essentially plugs his ears and lives in denial. He essentially says to Daniel, in the words of my wife's Greek uncle, I don't believe you. But in this case, he was wrong. Our third main point, when we're asking the question, will God judge others the way he has judged us? In the end, all human pride will be silenced. If our first main point is that human pride is loudest when it thinks God is silent, and the second is that human pride is loud because it thinks God is silent, the third is that in the end, all human pride will be silenced. For most of us, to be told, mene, mene, tekel, parsin, and have that applied to us would be terrifying. The last thing we want is to stand before God and to have him say that we have been measured and found wanting. What's the point? The point is that if there is even a whiff of this kind of pride in you, you should do the exact opposite of Belshazzar, and you should immediately fall on your face in your house right now and acknowledge that all you have is a gift from God and repent. And the good news is, if you believe in Jesus, God says the exact opposite. Instead of saying, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting, God says that Jesus has been weighed in the balances and you have been found my beloved son and daughter. If we believe in Christ, relying not on our own achievements, but on his, then the judgment that Belshazzar experienced in this life and the next holds no terror for us. For by Christ's righteousness, we have been fully adopted into God's family. On the one hand, the sermon could end right there. That is the good news of the gospel, friends. Yet, the original audience of this text would have asked a question that most of us ask too. If this passage teaches me that God is in control and will silence all human pride, then why doesn't he do it? I don't know about you, but I haven't seen many hands writing on walls lately, and I've been looking. Israel would have asked the same question. Yes, God judged Belshazzar, but he didn't restore Israel to glory. Rather, Israel remained a tiny, insignificant colony of five consecutive major empires. We read Psalm 2 earlier today. A psalm that hopefully now you can see why I chose it, because it talks about how God laughs when people mock him and mock his ruler. But can you imagine singing that psalm about how God laughs at those who plot against him while standing in the temple, when outside the temple gates are Persian or Greek or Roman soldiers patrolling outside? Wouldn't Israel have felt like we sometimes do? That the phrase, God is in control, is just a cop-out meant to take our minds off things and make us feel better. And the answer to that question is no. God's sovereignty is not a cop-out or an excuse or a call for passivity. Rather, it is a call for action, but action that is different than what the world tells us to do. To understand this, we need to see that God's judgment is not an abstract character trait, but is the fulfillment of a promise. The message of this story of Belshazzar is not just that God will silence the proud, but that God will keep his promises. When Jeremiah predicted Israel's destruction by Babylon, he also promised that God would eventually judge Babylon. In Jeremiah 50, 28 and 34, God promises a voice. They flee and escape from the land of Babylon to declare in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God. 
vengeance for his temple. Their redeemer is strong. He will, the Lord of hosts is his name. He will surely plead their cause that he may give rest to the whole earth, but unrest to the inhabitants of Babylon. Yet note that that promise was not immediately fulfilled. Jeremiah said it before Babylon even conquered Jerusalem, and it was not till more than 70 years later that Babylon was destroyed. Friends, we live in a similar situation. If God's judgment is the fulfillment of his promise, then why does he let so much evil go apparently unpunished? It's this frustration at God's silence that is the cause of much of our anxieties around elections. Whatever camp you're in, it's all too easy to blame the other side for evil. Republicans blame Democrats for the slaughter of millions of unborn babies, which is a desecration of lives that God says are sacred and is every bit as heinous as what Belshazzar did with the temple vessels. At the same time, Democrats blame Republicans for the mistreatment of immigrant children at the border and for failing to undo systemic injustice, both sins which desecrate lives that God says are sacred and which are every bit as heinous as what Belshazzar did with the temple vessels. We get anxious at elections and times of transition because we are afraid of what will happen next and we can't understand why God remains silent and seems to let evil and powerful people win. Yet just as in our passage, God is not silent. God's actions against Belshazzar were the fulfillment of his promise to Israel to deal with the sin against them. And yet before that promise, God made another bigger promise. Right at the beginning of the story, back in Genesis 3.15, God promised to deal with the root cause of all pride and all abuses of power. He promised to crush sin once and for all. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to punish sin once and for all. A punishment that Jesus bore so that we don't have to. Yeah. This is what enables us to act in the midst of questions about why God delays and why evil and arrogant rulers persist. When we pray, let your kingdom come. It's not a question. We're not asking, God, will your kingdom come someday? That's why John the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus has brought the kingdom. Yes, it will not be fully realized until his return. But both his return and the kingdom are certainties. Brothers and sisters, we know who wins. That's not an excuse for inaction. It's a call to action, a call to fearless, hopeful action. If we know who wins, then we can work persistently, consistently, and faithfully to embody the values of God's kingdom in this world. We can be persistent when change is slow. We can be hopeful when all seems against us. We don't have to fear arrogant leaders or corrupt governments or unjust laws. We know who wins. We're not afraid of those in power. We're not afraid of momentary setbacks. We can play the long game. We're not afraid of opposition and hardship. In the end, evil and sin will not win. Our God is king. And our call is to faithful, fearless, and hopeful action. Grounded in the fact that Christ, by his life, death, and resurrection, has secured the kingdom. And yet at the same time, we can struggle with impatience. Again, when we pray, let your kingdom come, we're not asking a question, but we are pleading for it to come quickly, this afternoon, preferably. While we wait for God's return to finally and fully eradicate sin, we can become impatient with having to live under proud leaders in the midst of brokenness and suffering, as we've confessed earlier in the service. And here's the key, though, friends. The reason for the delay the reason we have to endure in a world of sin is it's not God's silence, but his patience. It's not God's silence, but his patience. The passage we read about in our confession, 2 Peter 3.9, teaches that however much 
you want your brother or sister to repent and believe, God wants it more. And however much you want your enemy's destruction, God wants their reconciliation. God is waiting to judge because he is patient. Likewise, our confidence that the end is secure enables us to be patient, waiting for the end of sin. But that patience must emulate God's patience. That is, it must be connected to a concern for people and process. We cannot be so consumed with a particular outcome that we stop caring about individual people and the process of their reconciliation to God. Everywhere you look on the news, it says that our country is divided. God's church need not and should not be. We are united not around agreement on every issue, but on a shared identity that we will not be found wanting because it is Christ on the balance and not us. We are united by a shared confidence that God is in control and that it is him alone who will silence the proud in the end. And we are united around a shared imperative to act according to his will in the world, to act fearlessly, hopefully, and empathetically for the sake of the reconciliation of the world to its king. Let's close in prayer.